Quick note before we get started, you might think you hear a faint sound of a train throughout a portion of this episode. That's because there's a faint sound of a train running throughout a portion of this episode. We couldn't edit it out. So just do what we do and pretend it's not there. All right, enjoy the episode. God is leading you in the dark in this experience. He's taken you into a dark place. And he is going to give you satisfaction, and he will meet you in that place. He won't leave you there, but he will enrich your life through the experience in ways he couldn't any other way. Trust God in the dark. Welcome to Undiscussed, the show where we talk about things Christians should talk about, but often don't. This week, we discuss grief with Dave Martinen. Welcome to Undiscussed, the show where we talk about things Christians should talk about, but often don't. My name is Patrick. And I'm Eric, and uh, we're your co-hosts here today to talk about the subject of grief and loss. Yeah, grief and loss is something that I'm not actually too familiar with, uh, so this is an interesting topic for me to to dive into. I um, haven't actually lost anybody in, in my life that's very close to me. And I actually often have like pre-anxiety about that, about like, what's it going to be like? How am I going to function? How am I going to survive? Um, and it's been helpful to actually know people who have experienced uh, that loss and uh, just to journey with them and to gain wisdom and um, sometimes to ask questions. But I'll be honest, there are times when I actually don't know the right questions to ask or how to approach the conversation. Well, and that's the thing, right? The show... Uh, the reason we called it undiscussed is because often uh, in the in the church and amongst Christians, these subjects go untalked about and undiscussed. And uh, there's there's pain and and even grief in the silence of not dealing with these subjects. And so, you know, Pat, we're not experts on these, as you're just implying. You know, I have experienced loss in my life, but. Um, I wouldn't call myself an expert at all. And that's not really the point of the show. The point of the show is to open conversation and dialogue so that we can be having healthy and helpful conversations in the church. Yeah, so uh, hopefully this conversation will uh, give some of us insight into how to better understand those who are going through uh, loss and grief, uh, how to better understand ourselves as we respond to those who are going through loss and grief, and just hopefully create a better culture of, uh, of open conversation. Yeah, and I'm very excited because we have a special guest with us today. We have Dave Martin in with us. Hello, Dave. Hi, it's great for me to... <clears throat> Pardon me, it's great for me to be with you guys. And um, I just want to set the record straight, too. I'm not coming in as an expert. I am coming in as someone who has experienced loss um, in their life and really grateful for the opportunity to talk with you about that experience and do what you guys have said, talk about things that sometimes are either awkward or shut down or undiscussed because of um, oh, just our lack of familiarity with them or our uncertainty around them. Yeah. And uh, Dave, uh, I know that in in your past, you have been a church leader and a leader of leaders and so on. But I think the title that maybe you're most excited about these days is Grandpa. Uh, Yeah, I'm so glad you gave me that entranceway because I'll I'll slip into that with ease. Uh, I am. My wife and I are are grandparents to five grandchildren now, Um, twins who are 
just recently adopted and they live in South Asia. And then three biological children to our eldest daughter and her husband who live in Sweden. So in my role as a director of Fellowship International, I travel um, and I'm in leading the mission, but I also travel to be able to be with my grandchildren who, I've got to tell you, someone once quipped, that when you have um, grandchildren, it's like falling in love all over again. And that's my experience. And some other wag once quipped that grandchildren are, are the benefit of not killing your own children. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, we face those challenges as parents and we wonder what we're in for, but grandchildren are a reward. Well, I noticed that you said that you travel to see your grandchildren. I imagine you also travel to see your children and your, your uh, in-laws as well. Our children would actually say to us, don't forget we're in the mix. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, th- th- this uh, this whole experience of being a grandparent, where you're able to influence, but you're not responsible for all of the routine things within their life, really is a treasured experience. Uh, one I highly value. Do you have any um, favorite moments or experiences as a as a grandparent that you didn't expect to have? Oh my goodness, that's a great, I I think that expression, if I go back to what I've already said, falling in love all over again, how these children uh, just land in your heart in a way that you you want it to be, but you don't really know you haven't been there before. It's absolutely fantastic. They call you grandpa and everything else stops um, with just being in the life of that child, answering their question, walking with them, engaging in their life. It's just so rewarding. Oh, you're making me look forward to that day many, many years from now. Grandpups. (laughs) (laughs) You and your dog. Oh, yeah. I fall in love again every time she eats another one of my books. (laughs) uh, I feel like Zoe, your dog, is is an ongoing guest on the show because she she ends up uh, being a part of every conversation. Oh, yeah. She's an ongoing guest in all of our hearts, really. (laughs) But uh, Dave, actually, we first met... uh, a couple of years ago? Was it two years ago, maybe, when uh, we were doing an interview with you and you were actually able to share your story? Uh, it was themed at Dear First Year Me, and you talked about um, uh, your experience, actually, uh, with with loss and grief de- then, and that's what um, inspired us to invite you onto this show because we, we, we knew you were close to the issue and you had some interesting things to say about it, and there were things that we could we could learn from you just based on uh, what, you've, what you've been through. So uh, why don't we hear a little bit about your story uh, for the audience and how you're how you're connected to the topic of loss. Sure, you're talking about <clears throat> I think the, the one of the big events that shaped your life, and that was the loss of our son Jonathan when he was nine years of age. He was delivering newspapers and was um, struck by a vehicle and died 18 hours later in a Children's Hospital in Vancouver. We were living on Vancouver Island at the time, um, and that is a life-altering if I could use that phrase, a life-altering experience. Because you don't really want to survive it. Um, You would rather have your life end with that loss um, just because it's so traumatic and you don't have the, uh, I guess I'd use the word tools. You're not um, prepared. I don't, pardon me, when I say this, I'm not suggesting that we could ever adequately prepare for that kind of uh, experience. And I think to attempt to do so would border on being morbid. 
However, I would say to you, if I come back to my own experience, that navigating that, that um, I think a popular term is a journey, you're going through a walk, you're, you're, you're going towards a, an outcome. Um, you just don't really know what that's going to be and how that's going to work out um, in the early initial stages of the loss. Uh, coming to terms with that, um, there's a fear factor of forgetting what the person who has died looks like, what their voice sounds like, what they smell like when you embrace them, the fact that they won't ever hug you back, the fact that you can't talk to them, the, the, this permanent cut uh, loss is, is the term it's used, and it seems so inadequate. The, the language of grief, in my experience, was so inadequate to describe what my emotions, what my spiritual mindset was, all of those facets. So can you describe for us uh, a little bit about that period in your life? Like what else was going on? What was your, what was your career back then? Uh, what was your family like? What did it look like? Yeah, that's an insightful question too, because context is important for any experience. And Don and I were um, involved in church life at that point. I was um, the lead pastor of a congregation on, on the island. And we had been in that role just six months. So we had transitioned from a church that we had planted and led for just about, for 10 years and had moved down to a new area. And so we were somewhat, um, what could I say, sort of out of a familiar um, context and didn't have strong friendships in that context. We had a really strong, supportive church. I would say that in that experience, that support uh, grew and strengthened. Um, in, in some very significant ways. Jonathan was your oldest, um, but like what were the ages of the other kids and, and your wife, like you were in church ministry, but what were their, what was happening in their lives during that time? Yeah, Jonathan was our eldest nine years of age, as I think had already said, and Sarah and Ruth were um, six and five at the time. They were all involved in school, Ruth in kindergarten, uh, Sarah in grade one and, and Jonathan in grade four. And my wife was a stay-at-home mother at that point. She's since gone back and uh, has become an advanced practice nurse. I would say that the context was one that anyone would imagine in ministry. We were active and engaged in a church of about 250 people at that time. Um, I was working with one other staff person, and that was basically the context in which, um, in which we were working. It was a small community, about 10,000 people. And it was uh, just a nice family church, if I could describe it that way in summary. Yeah, there, there are two things that I'm particularly uh, curious about. One, how, how a loss like that can affect your family. I mean, not only are you and your wife suffering this insanely traumatic event, but you also have two kids that you are helping shepherd through this. What did that event do to your, your family life? It's interesting because we talk about this as a family. Um, I, I would suggest to you that grief is a little bit like an onion. It's got layers and layers and layers. And there are processes you go through in the initial stages of grief, but the impact of loss is, stretches out through the rest of your life. So I, I'll come back to the effect of the kids, but to say right now what we're talking about is our eldest daughter's eldest child, our first grandchild is turning nine at, on her next birthday. And already we're talking about what it was like for us as parents to lose a nine-year-old child as our 
um, eldest daughter, who is a psychotherapist, is talking about what her experience is having that child and having lost a brother of that age and all that's attending. And the, the children, as they've continued to grow through major life events, have always included or discussed uh, Jonathan, um, their older brother, at all of those, whether it's a wedding, whether it's moving out of the country, whether it's a major holiday or they're building their own family culture and, and, and how they want to establish it. I would say that grief or loss uh, or their brother uh, iterations of all of those things are uh, presented as part of that whole process. So with the children, it's, uh, our son died um, on the 10th of January, 1990. And a week later was our, our, our now eldest daughter's birthday. And we were saying to ourselves, we want to normalize our family as much as possible. So we had a funeral uh, a few days after Jonathan's death. And a few days after that, we were celebrating Sarah's birthday. And we just decided that we needed to make that as normal as possible. So here I am taking Sarah and 10 of her friends bowling. And we're bowling a ball and I'm turning around and weeping like a baby and then composing myself and going back and leading this party. And it was awful and important and all wrapped up into those same kinds of events. And we were determined that while our grief wouldn't be hidden from our children, they wouldn't suffer our, our grief either. They were children, they, they couldn't be expected to manage our emotions and feelings and worldview. And that puts you in such an odd position as a parent that you need care yourself, but you realize that you can't make the child the person who cares for you. You need to be caring for them. And, um, I think there were, those are things that occur to parents naturally, but I would say the context of this is that we were constantly vigilant to watch how our children were processing that. Now, one of the things you didn't ask, but I'll just say is, when you have a loss, you feel out of control. You feel like things happen to you without warning and without your ability to respond to. And so you, you, you go into a protective mode. You, you want to be sure everyone's safe. So the local school, the elementary school, was a great school and people were supportive of our children and us. But they offered counseling to our children without telling us that they were doing that. And while it's a wonderful thing they engaged the kids, the fact that we were left out of the process made us feel vulnerable again that we weren't part of the equation, that we weren't contributing to the outcome, that we weren't knowledgeable of the goals that they were setting for the children in that therapy. Um, I, I'm just raising that point because you're asking how it affected everyone and it affects you in predictable and unexpected ways. There are ways that you could prepare for loss in a sense of that, that cut, but there are other things that you can't expect um, that, you need, that do come up in surface of it. In the same way I could say of other major life-changing events like marriage people will tell you what it's like and then you get into it and you go well no one told me about this yeah yeah you you talk about the onion and different things i wonder if you could comment on stages of grief and like uh, did you um i imagine you and your wife uh went through grief differently um did you follow a predictable uh, sequence. Uh, maybe you could just comment on 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 that. 
Yeah, that, that's a great question. I, I think there are, without question, as I look back, stages of grief that you go through if you, you know, use an, uh, an author and a contributor to the field like Kubler-Ross, um, did some seminal work on the stages of grief. And yet I would say to you that the stages are not linear. And, and I think subsequent writing on the field would tell you that you, you go through stages or experiences, but you move back and forth within those experiences, both depending on what's going on and, and, and what's happening and how you're thinking and processing and what else is impacting you. Because life doesn't stop for you when you have grief. That's one of the things that my wife and I would say to each other is the world is crazy. I want it to stop. I want to be able to process this independently of everything else. And you can't, of course. You, you need to move forward, case in point, as we tried to normalize um, Sarah's birthday. And then in that first year, as you're going through your own process of recovery, you're also building new memories with your family. And that's essential and awful. Because every memory you make to normalize with your family, you're excluding the person that you've lost from that experience. And so the first year is all of the firsts. It's the first Christmas, it's the first school holiday, it's the first big family vacation. It's you know things that are focused on kids like Halloween and Christmas in terms of uh, the traditions that you have as a family, you're making up those traditions, what do you do on the birthday of the child that you've lost, etc. So there are those things that you work through. And so there are both stages of how you're mentally and spiritually going through what you're experiencing, where you deny it, where, where you're in shock, where you come to terms with it, you process it, all of that. So I, I would say that my experience in grief taught me that while you can look back and see phases and stages when you're going through it that's not nearly as helpful as people would want it to be for you yeah i could picture um i mean even myself i i would assume grief is like it's just a linear progression it's like oh where are you at one two three four five and obviously you're always going the same direction but there's this expectation versus reality graph sure. that I always see where it's always like there's one that's just linear progression and there's one that's just a giant mess of scribbles and you're going all over the place. And um, is that's more what, what grief is like is you kind of bounce around from stage to stage. Yeah, and I think we, we like to think of things as linear, but they're really messier than that in life. It's more of a mosaic. You know, it's more of a puzzle where pieces fit into a context. Overall, they build. There's certainly progression. And I think with grief, the issue becomes that you both want to move forward and yet you're terrified of moving forward because moving forward means you aren't gripped by the loss in the same way. Does that mean that you uh, don't love the person that you are grieving? Or are you going to love them less, right? There's all of that sort of headspace that goes on. Or, and even if it's not headspace, there's the confusion and frustration that I should figure this out, right? So I think all of that is, and you asked, I didn't answer your question, but you said, did you grieve differently? And the answer is absolutely. Donna and I grieve differently. And what I've subsequently learned or since learned about grief is grief is a learned process. If you go back to your first, I went to a grief and loss seminar with Dr. Nancy Reeves in, in Victoria, a brilliant clinician in this whole area. And she was teaching us on leaders and teaching us how to walk with people who are grieving. So as a pastor, it was 
I wished I'd taken it years before my own experience, but I, I gained a tremendous amount of information from it. And she said, because it's a learned process or a learned behavior, go back and think about the first loss that you've had uh, as, as a person. Was it the loss of a pet? What did your family do around that? Was it, oh, well, you know, Frisky's gone. Let's bury him in the garden and off we go. Was there any ceremony attached to it? Did anybody talk about memories? Did they process your emotions? Were there any, any tears that were said? Were you shut down for showing tears? Don't worry about that. Were you distracted from grief? Because families do different things in the face of sadness and loss. And personalities also come into this. So I remember Donna and I sitting down and talking, and she said with a degree of fierceness, Donna's not here to, to correct my, either my impressions or my description of her, but just let, she's a, a wonderful person and a partner, and I'm better in every way because we're in journey together. But she looked at me with a degree of fierceness and said, this is my grief, and no one is going to tell me how to do this. I'm going to do it my way. And she did, uh, unquestionably. And she is more of the introverted person, as you would anticipate, and as you're listening to me today, you would probably discern I'm somewhat more extroverted. And I use language and I process verbally. Donna is introspective, and she's the gal that sits and looks out the window and thinks. And then as she's come to some conclusions, she'll let you in on that, or she'll ask you questions. She'll invite you in, but you don't invade. You, you wait for that invitation to come in um, as a rule. So I, I would say that we grieved very differently, and, and we came across a frightening statistic, which was, uh, at the time, about 80% of the marriages that suffer the loss of a child end in divorce. And we were simply determined when we read that statistic, when we heard that, not to be a statistic, that, that our marriage would not end, and we would intentionally turn towards each other rather than away from each other. But when you're both in grief and in the marriage is not strong or stable or has some fractures, et cetera, and you understand what I mean by those generalized terms or pictures, loss then uh, is this incredible weight on something that is already in trouble or already having difficulty navigating. And our marriage was very strong and, and, and stable. And I would say at that point, we were able to say to each other things that perhaps people who were in a less stable situation or had a, a lesser degree of comfort with each other wouldn't maybe process the same way. So that's why grief is so intensely personal, because it has to take all of that context into um, consideration as you move through it. I've, I've already detected like a misstep that I... I know that I would um, I would make even. I know that when I experience something, I have this belief that everybody needs to experience it my way. And I almost have this insistence of like, oh, this is how I feel it. So if you're doing it a different way, you must be wrong. And telling someone like, oh no, grieve differently. Like I grieve this way. So why aren't you hopping on board my grief train and experiencing it the way that, that I do? Is, is there a, a wrong way to, to grieve? Or is there just a wrong way to approach those who are grieving? That's a huge question. You, you've asked two, I think, very separate tracks. Yeah. Uh, so let me comment on the first one, because I think in, in a Christian, in, in North American evangelical um, context particularly, we, we tend to produce paradigms of thought, and therefore behaviors that come out of that thought. You should think this and you should do that. 
Um, and we're used to sort of an apologetic uh, relative to truth and discovery. This is what it says. This is what I do. And it tends to be black and white. And if you have a performance-based personality or culture and you add to that, then right and wrong thinking can often be a part of, of how we approach life. And I, I just suggest that grief, while it's personalized, does have some things that are helpful and some things that are unhelpful. So if we, if we go into processing of grief and emotion, a less helpful response is denial. Uh, I'm not feeling this. I'm just going to stuff it down. And I would say to you that I, I fell into that um, because that's my nature as well, that uh, I would examine something, uh, I would make a decision, and I would seek to move forward. So for myself, three weeks after Jonathan's death, I was back working full-time in my pastoral role. Um, was that a good thing? Well, for me, it was the only way I knew how to go forward. And understand that this occurrence in my life was about 30 years ago. And at that point, grief wasn't well discussed and therapy was still somewhat suspicious. Um, models were still coming out and the evangelical community was adapting to them. So there wasn't anyone, I would say, that walked alongside of me, either in the denomination of which I was a part or within the church of which I was a part. And so I was really feeling alone to navigate. And for me, work was therapy. You know, in the same way I would say to, to people who know me because I like to garden, gardening's therapy because you weed things that don't belong and, and you feel that satisfaction and you see the end of the day, what you've actually achieved. And there's, there's whereas in the role of ministry, it's kind of like housework, if I could make that comparison, the dishes are never finished. The house always needs to be swept. Always things need to be set back in order because a family is constantly creating this disruption. So I feel there's a lot of parallel between those things. And... In grief, when you ask the question, am I doing it right, we had that same concern. So at one point, I remember phoning up a chaplain um, in another city, a major city, and saying to him, I know we don't know each other, but I'm looking for a referral to someone who could give me short-term therapy um, to a grief experience, the loss of a child. And he paused for a moment and he said to me, uh, I'll never forget his words, he said, Dave, there are as many models of therapy as you've got fingers and toes. And there are so many different practitioners each of those therapies. And in my opinion, many of them aren't worthy to pack your garbage to the curb, let alone unpack your heart. So let me tell you, if I was in your situation, here are two people I would go to. And um, so we made an appointment and Don and I were ready to go. And then life got in the way. There were some huge challenges that just made we couldn't keep it. But I'll tell you what happened to me at that point, Pat, was I decided, we knew that if we needed to talk to somebody, somebody was there, it was a lifeline for us. Whether or not we actually engaged it, knowing it was there was a tremendous comfort for us. And what we were looking for at that point was validation, that we weren't missing key elements of what grief was and that it was going to show up in ways that would either harm us or do harm through us to others. So we wanted to try and figure out what the pathway, but Don and I were both reading extensively at that point. Um, others who had gone through similar experiences and, and we found some very helpful processes that other people were doing that, that we implemented. The little bit that I know about you, Dave, one of the things is that you have worn many different hats of leadership in various churches and even now as you lead the fellowship uh, internationally. I'm wondering about 
how that, because you say grief carries on forward. Um, how does it change in your experience, uh, how you experience and, and process and demonstrate grief in the different areas? So, you know, church leader, husband, father, friend, and so on. Yeah, that's an insightful question. I appreciate you raising it. It's not always, you understand when you're talking about grief um, and the experience of that, those layers of grief aren't always surfaced in a conversation. People don't always give you the opportunity. And if I could just pause there and say that that was one of the less helpful things that we experienced is that people didn't know how to respond to our grief. And in Canadian culture, when you don't know what to do, the default is to do nothing for fear of creating discomfort or awkwardness or, you know, pain or making people cry and you're not sure if they'll ever turn the tears off. You don't want to be that person that does that. So the tendency is to withdraw. And as a result of that, you're left alone, you're isolated. And then that creates another sort of experience or layer within the grief process. So you're correct, I think, if I come back and say, what were the different roles or hats that you wore? And I mentioned already that in my grief, I was leading a church, and I didn't feel that it would be helpful for me to step away from it at that time, that being back in ministry and doing things that I was familiar with were part of my healing process, or um, healing might not be the right word, but that, that um, dealing with my grief or going through my grief. So I, for example, began teaching out of my grief, and I did a series of messages on the book of Job, because for me that was cathartic. I could examine someone else's grief and make some comparisons. I could ask myself, who was God to Job in all of this? He was being led blindly through his experience. No one consulted him. God didn't show up and say, Dave, this is what's going to happen to you. We had no forewarning. We've looked back and saw God, how he had prepared us. But in the experience, you feel... Um, somewhat uh, distanced from God in terms of the role that he could show up and put you in pain and never ask your permission, which is certainly what he did in Job's life because, as we know, God felt Job's that God's glory was safe in Job, that he could be put through this test and he would come forth and prove himself to be um, who he was as, as God's agent and, and, as a, 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 and his ambassador. So going through the book of Job for me at that level as a pastor was incredibly cathartic and helpful and healing for me. And I can tell you that people came to hear that because I was a wounded teacher and they really wanted to see if the truth of God's word was showing up in the context of my own life. And I, 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 it, it was a, an important part, an important piece of that. As to the other circles as a parent, I think I've described a little bit of that and the hypervigilance we felt. For example, we were terrified to let our kids ever out of our sight or to do anything that we weren't part of because we felt we needed to protect them. And somehow we hadn't done that for Jonathan. And uh, we talked openly about what we would have done differently in that whole process. Could we have done anything? Because what we were desperate to do is prevent loss. Uh, you don't want another loss. You don't, you don't want to anything that would be attributed. So here's a little story that comes from that. Part of our process in making new memories is we were invited by a friend in the congregation to join them on an outward bound experience. So we all got in our canoes and we went to um, the Broken Islands, which is on the west coast of Vancouver Island, and the next stop is Japan. 
So they're a group of islands, a constellation that breaks the ocean up, but doesn't completely prevent the wind and the waves and all of that from affecting you. So we we launched, went from a place called Tokart Bay. We're in our canoes. We stop on one of the islands appropriately called the Stoppers, where fueling stations for whalers in the old days. Land there, and then the threatful challenge that uh, threatful channel that we had to cross was full of waves and and wind. So much so that when the canoe was in the trough of the wave, the peak meant that no one saw us. We disappeared. We were bobbing up and down. And I could see the editorial newspaper that said, stupid man imperils family. (laughs) I mean, that's how I was feeling. What was I thinking? Because you've been through loss then, it shapes everything else you feel. Every, Every other experience is seen through a lens where you know you might not come back from this at the end of the day. And risk is part of life. It's part of what you need to do. It's part of how you need to push boundaries. And probably the bigger risk that we took, because one of the good things that came out of this, I would say to you, is that we realized life was uncertain. God had given you dreams, and you should, with intention, pursue them. So where that led us to in grief, and I'm coming to this issue of family and and a leader, was that we needed to pursue our dream and we had said to each other, one day we'll be in missions. And we realized one day never comes. You only have today. So long story short, we ended up in an assignment of being caregivers to the, uh, our field in Pakistan, 45 adults. And they asked if we would come and live in residence for three months and then go back every two years up to five weeks and provide pastoral care support. So that would be four trips over that six-year assignment, starting with a three-year residency and we flew with our kids to uh, Pakistan to a Muslim country that at that point was under martial law and I remember my father phoning me and saying Dave like what are you doing and I, I can I can replay the conversation in my head my dad's now in heaven um, but I remember saying to him dad my my mother your wife died of cancer in this country and my son, your grandson, died in a car accident in this country. We can't keep people safe anywhere. That's in God's hands, not ours. There was silence on the other end of the phone. And my dad said, you're going to go then. I said, <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm going to go. He said, okay, I'm going to support you. Which was great news and you know, all of that worked out well. But what I'm saying is the choice to live is almost paralyzing in the face of grief. And, and you hold that in your heart as a dad, right? That, that, that's part of what shapes you. And, and as, a, as a husband, I think it was to support my wife and she to support me and to give each other the distance we needed to process things our way, but then with intention to come back and talk about them. Where are we? What are we feeling? What are we thinking? All of that. After the break, Dave Martin shares some helpful and unhelpful ways to respond to grief. Today's episode is brought to you by the Equipped Small Group Series. Equipped is a series of eight four-lesson workbooks to help you dive deeper into topics like evangelism, discipleship, the Holy Spirit, prayer, and more. You know, Pat, both in my own life and in the lives of friends who are in small groups with me, I've got some horror stories and I've got some, uh, you know, stories of transformation. And, you know, the horror stories sound more like funny anecdotes now. 
but I love small groups and I'm excited to have materials like the Equip series to help people to grow. Yeah, you know, I've participated in a lot of small group studies over the years and I've led a bunch of them too. And what I really enjoy that's unique about the Equip series is how it seems to stay away from Sunday schooling you too much. What the heck is Sunday schooling? Okay, so you know when you're asked a question kind of like in Sunday school and you know they're looking for one specific answer, even though there are probably a couple of really good answers that you could give, you know what I mean? Jesus. Oh, sorry, I thought you, I thought the right answer was Jesus to every question. I mean, it kind of is, but it's more nuanced than that sometimes, and I think that's the strength of Equipped. I get it. For more information, go to p2c.sh slash equipped. Earlier, you mentioned that uh, there was this moment when you took your family to uh, to go bowling for your, your daughter's birthday, and you tried to go about the motions, you were bowling, but you'd have to turn away and, and cry almost in private, and then come back and face your family, but put yourself together and present this uh, image of you know someone who was doing okay, at least in that moment. And being a leader in a church as well, I imagine that there was a similar maybe desire to do that there where you you felt like you kind of had to portray a certain image or version of yourself did you feel the freedom to to be yourself in grief or did you feel like you had to to be a certain way for the sake of other people that's a great question and 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 i think it's nuanced with um two things one is it's it's got a historical nuance about what the culture expects from leaders and how it shapes leaders behaviors for example I think also a church culture is a facet of that as to what their expectations of leaders are and how you fulfill them. Because you can push some of those boundaries, Pat, some ways, but you you also have to live within some of those kind of constraints. And I would say now that typically leaders within church groups um, have a freedom to express vulnerability and um, development and being in process with a greater degree of freedom than they could have even 30 years ago. I think there's been sort of a a movement in that, both in um, doing that well and doing that poorly. Uh, I think we still need leaders in whom we have confidence and trust, and that's built on integrity, that's built on maturity, that's built on a few things that shouldn't be sacrificed, in my opinion, for that sake of uh, connecting in, in a place where we're all vulnerable. So answering your question directly is yes, I I think there were times, but that's also personality, how it affects you, how comfortable I am with things. So I I do think at times I said to myself with a degree of calculation, I don't want the church to have to go through my grief because I'm grieving. I don't want them to ignore my grief and I don't want to hide it completely. So for example, I might be leading and then someone, there might be a song and I'm just blubbering like a baby. At that point, I used to sit in front of the congregation up on the dais. That was part of the tradition of that church. It's since changed, but that was part of it. Well, suddenly here I am, every eye's on me. They're all going, oh, is he cracking up? You know, I mean, that's how I'm perceiving it. So not only is there that I'm leading the congregation, but it's how they're perceiving me and how I'm perceiving them. And no one necessarily has a little check-in talk about that. It's just perception. So yeah, I would say that I'm sure if you were inter- if you were to interview people who watched and observed or journeyed with me in that process, they might have some very interesting answers about. But they would probably have inter- interesting answers about other aspects of my leadership too. It's all sort of bound up together. Yeah, and 
One of the reasons I was really excited about this episode in particular is I think there is a culture, especially in the North America, I'll speak for Canada, the Canadian church, that there's an expectation that Christians have it all together, that there's this myth, or I call it a myth, that there's nothing hard <laughs> that we experience because, you know, we're living uh, the joyous victorious Christian life. And, and there is a, a joy and a victory that comes with uh, following Christ. But uh, Jesus also promises us that we'd have trouble. And so I wonder um, if you can comment, because you've seen the church and the, the culture over a, a longer period than me, hate to out you, but you did call yourself a grandparent. Uh, how would you describe how that, that, uh, I'll even say it this way, that that insidious myth that there's nothing hard uh, has been in the church. Yeah, that's a great question. It's perceptive. You guys are doing a great job of interviewing me in this context. I'd say to you that um, that I think we're guilty of reductionism. T- to make things easier to understand, we sometimes make them simplistic. And as a result of that, we create platitudes or paradigms of understanding if this, then that. And life isn't a a formula. It's not about a formula. And I agree with you that I think think one of the things that's often missing from a rigorous uh, theology in, in evangelical movement is a doctrine of suffering. We sometimes think naively that if I love God and I do all the things I'm supposed to do, then A plus B equals C, and I'll feel comfortable. Because the highest value of Canadian culture is comfort. And if we're not comfortable, then somebody's failed. And and we look for how to root it out and how to define it and exclude it. And I, I just know that life isn't neat like that, and so do you. And I think a rigorous teaching... Um, a more mature theology that we would develop of life is going to have to include suffering and loss. And, and I think, you know, if I quote, uh, you know, one of, one of the contributors to the whole evangelical ethos and, and theology, Tim Keller, he would say, there is no forgiveness without suffering. And that's on a very personal level. Now, death and forgiveness meet in Christ. They didn't meet in my experience. I'm not suggesting that was part of the paradigm in the loss of Jonathan, but I want to say to you for sure, if we don't have a mature concept of how God works and understand what loss and grief are all about, when we experience that, it's shattering. Mm -hmm. Now, we do call this show Undiscussed, and so I'm wondering uh, if we can, you know, shift to to the conversation around grief, and you can speak as a leader, you can speak to your experience. Um, what do you think uh, are the unhelpful notions or um, ways that people talk about grief and suffering and, and loss, and uh, either in the silence or in, the, in just accomplishing it poorly? Oh, that's a great question, too. I think it goes back to what I previously said, that we victimize ourselves by not having a robust view of of who God is and how the gospel works. And uh, we fail to understand that we're going to experience what Jesus did. We, We somehow get to the triumphal part, the resurrection, but we forget how he was treated and viewed um, within life and misunderstood. So if I come back to that whole process and what was less helpful for me in grief, 
is the well-meaning platitudes and the quotes of scripture that were intended to comfort me, but often had the opposite effect because I felt I needed to defend my experience when it didn't match what someone else was trying to help me with. For example, people would say, oh, Jonathan's in heaven now. It's true, I believe that. But I want you to understand that heaven for me, as real as it was, was still a separation from Jonathan and I. And knowing where he was didn't deal with my loss about where I was. Uh, This was really hard. And I'm not given to dreams and visions or those kinds of -of out-of-the-body experiences, but I remember a particularly low moment when I was sitting on the steps of my house inside the home, and I was just weeping before God, and I cried out in my anguish, and I said, I hope you have a plan for this because it's killing me. And suddenly at that moment, in answer to that cry, I had a sense of, I I didn't see him, I'm not saying there was a form, but I had a sense that someone was standing right behind me, tall and strong and vigorous and incredibly happy and content. And in my head, I said to myself, oh, that's Jonathan. And then I said to the Lord, I get it. I am missing him, but he's not missing me. In the presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. If that is true, then Jonathan's loss of his family and earth is eclipsed by the joyous satisfaction of being absent from the body and present with the Lord. And that actually put boundaries on my grief. And I began to see it and own it very much for myself and not put it on anybody else, certainly not on Jonathan. And and that was a way forward. If I come back to what other people did, there was those platitudes, there was those, um, you know, weeping indoors for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And I think, are you kidding me? Like, you know, what am I supposed to do with that? Um, Or others, people would come along and we found ourselves as leaders within a church that we actually had to take the weight of coaching other people how to help us. And, and I know that that's not unique to a leader. Other people have said the same thing. One of the paralyzing parts of grief is people don't know what to say, so you have to coach them how to help them be your friend in loss. So we would say to people, if you're comfortable, I'd like to talk to you about Jonathan. Because one of the fears are we were forgetting him. One of the permissions we needed was to talk about him and not have people be afraid we would cry or that we would grieve openly with them, or that they were somehow contributing to our pain when actually they were allowing us to express our pain and allow it to come out. So we would do that, and we established as a family, I don't know if you would like to call it a ritual, I suppose when you do things over and over again, you ritualize them. And for us, um, one of the things that Donna and I have maintained as a family is on Jonathan's birthday, we eat one of the things he really enjoyed that we would cook for him. And we tell Jonathan stories between us. We might even get out an album, a picture book that we have, and we'll talk about story, you know, Jonathan stories. Because as a nine-year-old, there were hilarious things that he did. And there were stupid things <laughs> that he did. And we will recount those things, not in any way to harm his memory, but to keep his memory robust. And to say he was a real person and he was nine and he was perfect for nine, but he was nine. And so here are some of the Jonathan stories that we'll tell. And those things for us are wonderful. 
Like we, we find that. And if we, if we cry over those things, that's fine. That's also a recognition of, of, of what we've gone through. But it's also very much part of the celebration. And we do it on his birthday with intent because we want to celebrate. His name means gift of God. And we want to celebrate that Jonathan was and remains a gift to us. Even though he was only with us for nine years, those nine years weren't inadequate. They, they were full. And, and we celebrate that. So I'd also say that one of the other things about undiscussed is you get those platitudes and you get those awkwardness. But I also want to say that people did wonderful things for us because, you know, one of my good friends came to me at that point and he said, you know, I have a son. And I said, yeah. And and the upshot of the conversation was, if you ever want to borrow him for an afternoon, if you just want to hang out with a kid, you, you can come and do that anytime. Now, that was a huge gift that he was simply saying, um, if you're missing just hanging out with a kid, I can make that happen for you and I will share my family with you. I mean, I feel quite emotional even describing that to you because I realized that that was an incredible gift. He wasn't giving his boy away, don't get me wrong. Um, he may have well chosen knowing who he is to engage with me and his son and we did those kinds of things together. But, but that was a really positive thing that someone did for me, is they recognized where my pain was and, and figured out a way of entering into it with me in a way that was really caring. This is just illuminating how out of touch I am. <laughs> like, I, I am so, I feel like my natural inclination is to do the exact opposite of everything that was unhelpful and helpful in those examples. I somehow believe in my head that if I bring up someone uh, who's passed away, oh no, I'm reminding the person of them and that they're gone. And I want to, like my, my, I think inclination is to distract people from you know, like pain and suffering and kind of make, oh, try and make them forget. And it's making me realize that like, that's probably just not helpful to, to ignore the fact that somebody has, has passed away. And even the, like, I would have never thought to, to let someone borrow my kid <laughs> or to just hang out with with my kid because i i would fear you know that that would come across wrong but it just it hit such a a, a good nerve with you and just touched you so deeply based on based on what you were saying earlier dave i i i'm now curious about pat's family of origin and their their yeah their grief stories sure yeah. sure yeah it, it it's a really helpful thing to examine that and to yeah. say you know how, how do i process this if i could add one other thing is that we learned from the experience of loss that it's always right to go to someone who is in grief even if they can't receive you for them to invite you into their grief is paralyzing how do they how do they begin to let you in they, they don't know the tools or the process so when Jonathan was still um, at Children's Hospital and we had flown over there, there had been a network of phone calls, as you can imagine, people caring about us, calling their friends, calling their family. And we had a number of people who came to the hospital immediately, just interrupted their lives and arrived. I'll never forget that. We couldn't always spend time with him because we didn't want to tear ourselves away from Jonathan's bedside. The conclusion of his life uh, at that point hadn't been pronounced by the physicians. And, and we needed to be with him. And so I'm saying to you that when you go, if someone can't receive you, it doesn't mean it was wrong and you did a bad thing. It just means it wasn't the right time. And they might not be able to express that to you at the time. So that's why other people like myself who've gone through it can help interpret that you know, for a few others. 
I'd also say that one of the very helpful things that people did was they asked permission. They would say, could I do this? Would this be helpful? Or to ask a question, what can I do for you to support you? What would you value me doing? And we had people who showed up and brought meals, which of course is a Canadian thing to do. They cleaned our house, they washed our car, um, they went for walks with us, they invited us out. And we would say, oh, that's a great idea, we'll come. And then we would phone and say, we just can't. You know, pl please can you accept that we would love to come, but right now our experience is that if we go, we're just gonna be wasted to ourselves and to you. So we're just going to cocoon. Something that uh, a friend from church uh, in my life has shared with me is that there's a difference between stated support and felt support. So good uh, line, good line. Yeah. And it stuck with me cause, um, he, I'm going to quote him poorly. So I'll just paraphrase. Uh, he would say that, you know, saying, I love you or saying, uh, I'm here for you or, uh, maybe what the person feel they receive it that way. But if they don't receive it that way, then it's as though it didn't happen. And so he is he has encouraged me in those situations to look for the ways that the people feel supported. And uh, so it sounds like you had a community of people that was uh, engaging in both saying, stating support, but also uh, expressing it in a way that you were able to receive it. That's so true. You know, for example, one of the wise uh, elderly women in, in the church we were leading at the time of Jonathan's death. And we had people from our former church that we had six months ago left. They came in significant numbers to the funeral and sat with us. And one of them, the two ladies were talking, one said to the other, oh, I'm so sorry, we're not giving you a chance to have um, contact with Dave and Donna. And she looked at them and said, we've got them after you leave and just gave them permission to soak up that time with us and to invest in us, which was wonderful. And I would say to you that, you know, I'm, I'm rephrasing what, I think what your friend said to you wisely was, language of love is important to pay attention to. Is it acts of service? Is it presence? Is it, um, you know, our gifts? Is it just uh, time? What are those things that have been articulated? because they impact grief and, and how people are dealing with it too. So you're, now what you're saying to me is processing grief and assisting people in grief means different things to different people because we have those languages, experiences, personalities, and you're right, it's all, all needs to be factored in. Yeah, it's almost impossible to find a formula to do it the right way. And we're obsessed with that. The more I talk about these things, the more I realize that our culture is just like, what's the right way to do it? How do we check all the boxes? and how do we do things uh, properly? And um, it's just, I don't know, trial and error, it seems to be like a decent way to do it. Um, you, you know, Pat, that's true, particularly if you ask permission. And yeah. I would say that pretty much every other um, discipline, if I want to use that term, has an outcome they want to get to, which is, if I use the term in grief, it's caring for the person who's grieving. That's really, I think, where we're landing right now. But if you look at the delivery of that service like a physician, he knows he wants your health, but currently it's not the physician telling you what to do, it's entering into a consultative process and say, here are some options. What do you think would work for you and how might we get to a better condition of health with you? If you go to a counselor, it's the same. The counselor isn't gonna say, I know how to make you better. 
the counselor will say, well, let's talk about this because talk is one of the processes that we're going to. I'm going to give you some homework. I'm going to do some other things. But right now, let's talk about what it is you want expectation. So I would say grief is a similar process. Uh, one of the things that we like to do on the show is to give our guests the last word on the subject. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I've liked every one of our guests, but I, I have especially... I say this every time, but especially enjoyed our conversation with you. And I know that you're so humble. You won't want to take my uh, compliment, but you are a very wise person. And I have very enjoyed all of the interactions I have from you. So I'm, I could sit and listen to you for another couple hours, but maybe could you give us your last word on the topic of grief and suffering and, and those sorts of things. And, you know, you could take a minute to to collect your thoughts or well, well what leaps to my mind and something that we haven't talked about is what are the good things that god brings to those who suffer or go through grief like this and, and i, I want to end on that note if, if i might because there were a couple of things that god brought into sharp focus again that were gifts that people gave me uh, one person came to me and gave me isaiah 45 3 which is really a prophecy to um, a man who, who didn't know to his own satisfaction God. It was about Cyrus. And the prophet said um, to Cyrus, I will give you the treasures of darkness. And it's a, it's a puzzling context, or it's a puzzling phrase. <clears throat> what the person intended me to receive and what I took from it was that God is leading you in the dark in this experience. He's taken you into a dark place. And he is going to give you satisfaction, and he will meet you in that place. He won't leave you there, but he will enrich your life through the experience in ways he couldn't any other way. Trust God in the dark. And it's repeated in Isaiah 50, where the prophet is saying to the individual who's in the dark, do not light for yourself a torch, but wait for me. Um, And then he actually has a strong word of condemnation or judgment to the person who fashions his own light to make his own way. And he says, this is what you'll receive from me. You'll lie down in torment. And he's really saying that you need to go through these experiences with me. And if you trust me and learn to trust me, even though you're terrified of me, even though you're confused by my action, if you trust me, I am going to give you what you cannot gain any other way. And I'm here to tell you God did that. That's our our involvement in missions. That was how God has enriched our lives. Now, one other story as I conclude, I know this is going on longer than the last word, but um, since you've given me the mic, I'm going to take it. And and it is where um, grief shows up in your future, and you might have to battle some of the pieces that come out of it. So I moved to Guelph four years ago, that's where we're currently living, in Ontario. And I remember saying to my wife, you know what, I I kind of think I'm holding my heart against God right now. She looked puzzled and she said, you've got to sort of say more, what what do you mean? And I said, well, God didn't ask my permission when I was plunged into grief with Jonathan's death. And you know what, I think I'm guarding my heart, trying to prepare myself that if God does something else that's unsettling, I'm ready for it. And I don't want to live like that. And and you've got to know my wife and our humor. She stood up and she came over and she slapped me. <laughs> no, I mean not a, not on the face and, and not a, a wild, but, but it was unexpected. I said, "Die!" What was that for? She said, "You th- all this time, 
I thought I was the wretch <laughs> that was dealing with these things and I've told you this stuff. And now I find out, and I said, Don, I'm confessing this, you know, get this right, um, because I want to be better. So what am I saying to this is that our experience has ways of showing up in our life with repetition. And if, if we can fall prey to the weakness of our flesh or the enemy that we have in the world, he'll conspire against us. So we do have to very determinedly, I'm going to say, trust God in the dark places and anticipate in ways that we can't, you know, really know what that's going to look like, that he is going to lead us into a green pasture uh, with still waters and he will restore our soul. And so I'm telling you on the outside of recovery that God has done a work of restoration in my life. And I can talk about grief this way with you and what's undiscussed because I really do believe he is the answer. And he will journey with us in the experience, even if we feel, you know, hear my cry, O Lord, attend unto my prayer. From the ends of the earth will I cry unto thee. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That's Psalm 61, 1 and 2. And when you feel that, there's nothing under your feet. You're bobbing like a little piece of wood in a wild ocean, and you do not know where stability will come from. That was my grief experience. But I can tell you, I feel a rock under my feet. And I, I do know who has supported and led me. And I think that's my final word as we just sort of bring it together. But that's a long process. And I do hope that what will come out of this is more people will talk about grief and will talk with others and engage them with permission in their grief experience. Yeah, that's our, our hope too. And um, I think this has been insightful for me and uh, it ended on a, on a hopeful note too. So I'm really thankful for the time that you... Uh, gave us and uh, just the, the vulnerability with which you shared your experience. Yeah, thanks so much, Dave. This episode of Undiscussed was produced by Patrick Erskine and Eric Humphrey. Editing done by Ben Skinner and the music was produced by Ian Post. Go to p2c.sh undiscussed to find more episodes, show notes, and information about our podcast. That's p2c.sh undiscussed. Also, remember to subscribe if you like what you hear, and you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at undiscussedpod, all one word. If you've got feedback for us, don't leave it undiscussed. Our next episode marks the halfway point of season one of Undiscussed. So Pat and I are going to do a special episode where we discuss our favorite moments from the podcast so far and maybe talk about a little of what we've learned as well. I'm looking forward to it.